Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. This is Hugh Ballou, founder and president of CenterVision Leadership Foundation where we help leaders build synergy with their teams, their boards, their volunteers, their members to accomplish their mission. And there's some important things that we need to think about in leadership. And today, uh, my guest is James Wetrich, and James is in Texas. And James, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. Please take a minute and tell people a little bit about who you are and why you do this important work. Yeah, Hugh, thank you so much. I'm honored and delighted to be with you and, and your guests uh, and your listeners, um, I am very passionate about leadership, about management. Um, I read Warren Bennis's book uh, in 1979 on becoming a leader, and uh, it well, right after it was published in uh, or 1989, sorry, um, and it it changed my life forever. And I've become a student of leadership ever since, really uh, pouring into to Warren's book. Um, and I've read many books on leadership. I blog a little bit on leadership. And of course, I've written a book uh, with some characteristics of uh, good and bad leaders. What's the name of your book? Stifled, uh, Where Good Leaders Go Wrong. Whoa. Now, that is an interesting topic. Now, we've we've titled uh, this interview, Leadership in the Abyss, From Bad to Worse, and How Companies Are Stifling Their Employees. So, Give us a little enlightenment about that. Yeah, actually, Hugh, since I published the book uh, two years ago, it, it's it's actually getting worse. And that's why we titled, I think, this session uh, <laughs> From Bad to Worse. Uh, I can't believe some of the things that are going on. And there still continues to be too many meetings, too much bureaucracy, too much use of poor performance management, companies that aren't training their leaders, leaders that don't know what their job is. I, I There was a Gallup poll a couple of years ago that said something like 25% of the managers don't even know what their job really is. I mean, it's it's uh, it's amazing. And I, I have a, a, a client I have worked with in the past recently who actually um, told me that after their performance management process, they had to redo all their performance management ratings because the organization decided that certain people weren't going to have certain ratings and they need to go back and re-rate their people after they've already rated them and submitted their performance review. I mean, it's just stuff like that, Hugh, you just can't imagine. I had a friend call me the other day. They were asked for anonymous feedback on a leader and um, uh, one of his subordinates uh, was called by the chief operating officer of the company asking him to explain his feedback he'd provided uh, in this so-called anonymous feedback, which was no longer uh, so anonymous. Yeah. Yeah. And anonymous is, is questionable anyway. Of course. Of course. So um, you've been working in this field for a while and you've seen the good, bad and the ugly. And as you just alluded to, or you didn't allude to, you just said it straight out, it's getting worse. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think it's getting worse? Well, you know, uh, Hugh, I was talking to somebody the other day and, and they speculated that it's it's uh, the pressure of the, of the bureaucracy. In other words, um, if uh, I'm working for you, 
you're concerned that uh, I'm going to do a good job because you want to look good. And um, the pressure from above for people to look good and be good performers is putting pressure throughout the organization. Um, I I can't trust Jim to do his job, so I have to help manage Jim and the people below Jim because I want to look good myself. And the only way I can guarantee that I look good is if I put pressure on everybody working for me to make sure they get their work done. So I think that's interesting. And I, I do think there is a lot of downward pressure. And I do think that culture for the most part starts at the top. Oh, absolutely. And I don't know if you know, my career was a musical conductor. Um, and um, I, um, I served mega churches and I hired major orchestras wherever I was working. But it's exactly true in any culture, what the orchestra sees, what the choir sees is what you get. Yeah, uh, amen. The culture is really, really a reflection of the leader. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Our whole methodology is based on you know, how do you conduct transformation? Well, you don't, you don't sing or you don't play the instruments, you lead. Yes. What's yeah. the biggest misunderstanding in your experience of the word leadership? What's the biggest misunderstanding? Um, I I think people believe that it means that I need to tell you what to do, right? Um, and and um, I I I think that's where a lot of leaders get into a lot of trouble. They believe, particularly when they've been very good individual contributors and they're put into a new managerial leadership role that I need to actually tell you how to do your job, what to do, when to do it, uh, the process to follow. And they have confused being supportive um, and helping with development with having to actually tell people what to do. No, I don't need you to tell me what to do as my leader. I need you to help me get my job done. I need you to help me remove barriers and roadblocks. I need you to help me develop so I can do my job, but I don't need you to tell me what to do. Yeah. I'd like to tell our listeners, you and I just met and we are spot on in alignment yeah. with what you're talking about. And, you know, I don't think any organization you're you're talking about corporate America, but I serve mega churches. It's the same bureaucracy. Yep. Yep. Uh, and there's larger nonprofits and, and you with of course, corporate leaders and the boards. So they bring all the bad practices from business into that. Absolutely. Yeah, they do both. They bring good ones. But, you know, there's some of course. And we have a heightened anxiety in the culture, which we don't need to go there, but it's there. Yes. And that infects our organization's inside. So what, and if, I, mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the writings of Murray Bowen, B-O-W-E-N, a psychiatrist, has Bowen Family System. And we learn about ourselves from our family of origin. Yep. And one of the things that he talks about is uh, the reciprocity of over-functioning, under-functioning. And the more the leader over-functions, the less other people are going to function. Yep. Yep. I'm not familiar with that, but I, it makes complete sense. Understand it. Yep. Yeah. Murray, Bowen, Murray uh, Bowen Family Systems, Georgetown yep. University is the Bowen Center. Um, but I've studied that methodology for many years, and it's it is spot on to what you're talking about. And not only do we unknowingly set up problems, but we actually make them worse, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely. 
I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So um, we're going to talk about your website and just to, before we, you know, before we end this, we got a lot to, a lot of coverage between now and then. So um, let's talk more. So I've, I've, I work with leaders all over the globe, corporate yep. leaders, nonprofit leaders, church leaders, you know, it really doesn't matter. What you're talking about is generic leadership. Correct. And in, in the nonprofit world, it's the same, but it's a whole lot more difficult. It because, is. Yeah. Because it, why is that? Why do you say that? Well, you know, uh, I forget the exact quote. You may know it, but um, Peter Drucker, who I admire greatly and has a great management mind, said there's nothing more difficult in managing than managing a nonprofit or a nonprofit hospital. I can't remember which one it was he said, but um, yeah, it's uh, um, I, I, I think um, sometimes we get a little confused and I've worked in nonprofits. I've worked in nonprofit hospitals. Um, I've been on nonprofit boards, um, both fairly significant and uh, very small. I think sometimes we have a conflict between what is our mission, right? And when I was running um, and working in nonprofit hospitals in New Orleans, I worked at Auctioner Hospital, and I remember one of the Louisiana Hospital Association meetings, and there was debate about how much money hospitals should make and what is our mission. And, and one of the nuns running the local Catholic hospital stood up and said, no margin, no mission. So there is a balance, right, between serving our constituents, serving our patients, serving whoever we're serving in the nonprofit, and also understanding that we need to have excess funds, right, because we need money to fund our nonprofit and it's okay to have excess, you know, uh, funds, uh, in excess of our expenses, right? Uh, we have to have uh, money to make investments and build things. And, um, I think sometimes people don't completely understand that nuance of nonprofits. Well, <clears throat> spot on. And actually the word nonprofit doesn't serve us well. It's a lie. Correct. 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 And and we get into this scarcity mindset. Yep. And so one of our our biggest assets are the people. Of course, of course. So so let's um you you wrote this book and um, I'm sure people can get it on Amazon, can they? Yes. Yep. And it's called um is it is that the title of the book Stifled? We're Stifled, good, where good leaders go wrong. Yep. And and it's um um. Wet, it's W-T-R-I-R-I-C-H. Right, two words, wet, rich, you got wet, it. Wet, rich, yep. instead yep. of by poor. That's uh, right. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a rich. So when people look into the book, what will they find? Um, you'll find 17 chapters uh, in areas where I mostly identify where leaders get into trouble and things they do that cause um, them to stifle their organization. There's also a couple chapters on uh, lessons we've learned from the pandemic, during the pandemic, and and where I think things are going in the future. But there's uh, a number of chapters that talk about some of the big challenges um, with leadership and and where good leaders go wrong. Wow, wow! So we we've been doing episodes for eight and a half years. This is the first time we've covered this specific material. And of course, you're quoting Peter. Peter Drucker, one of our first guests eight years ago was Frances Hesselbein. Yes, yes, I know of her. I've never had the pleasure, and I know she's passed, but I never had the pleasure of meeting her, and I wish I had, yeah. I was with her when she was 100 in her office on Madison Avenue, built for her, 
and um, she uh, was was a marvelous. So she was guest of five presidents, but she met Peter Drucker when she was running the Girl Scouts. Yes, I think I heard that. Yes, and she used his methodology. So she invited him to her Girl Scout office, wow. and he said, "I've never seen a better run organization in my life." And she said, "Oh, you mean nonprofit?" He said, "No." So that that's taking a really yep. good methodology and putting it to work. Yeah. And Ronald Reagan said we should join my cabinet. She said, no, I'm busy running the Girl Scouts. So that's real differentiation. I am doing good work here. Yeah. And I'm going to stay here. So when you you talk yep. about some of the deficits of leaders, um, I am I talked to a lot of leaders. And and you know, one time there's a guy who's a service person at a big organization, and he got a new boss, MBA grad, came in and says, Come here opens the manual, says, here's how we're going to do things now, you know, the boss syndrome, which, by yes. the way, is spelled double SOB spelled backwards. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 and the guy held up his hand, and, and the new boss said, what do you mean? He says, I wrote that manual. He had no clue, was going to boss him around. So besides that syndrome, you know, we don't, you come in in a lateral move in a company, you don't have any clue about what goes on below you. Yes. feel like you've got to have all the answers. And we teach in center vision, no, you don't need the answers. You need good questions. Yeah, that's right. So what are some of the other deficits that we need to pay attention to as leaders? Um, I, I think um, actually it's it's really kind of um, um, uh, an interesting situation right now, Hugh, where we're, we're, we're actually um, creating more angst with too much communication. Um, and by that, by that, I mean, I don't necessarily think people are communicating enough, but I, as an employee, I'm spending a lot of time every day looking for communication. I have to check my email. I have to check Slack. I have to check SharePoint. I have to check the intranet. I have text messages. I have all kinds of places I have to go for information. And if anything, I suggest in my coaching business to leaders figure out how we're going to communicate. We, we don't need 40 different places to communicate. We need a few because too many people are spending too much time chasing communication. The other thing, yeah, go ahead, Hugh. Yeah. No, no, go, go ahead. The other, thing. The, the other thing I caution leaders on is we're often very binary. And the example I give is I was part of an organization one time and the senior VP stood up and said, if you want to go from sales rep to sales manager, you have to have an intermediate step and do this job over here. Then we will make you a sales manager, okay? But this is the path you're going to have to follow. And then a month later, a management position came open in a particular city, and they promoted the sales rep directly into that manager job. Now, wait a minute. You just told a 1,000 people that isn't going to the way it's going to happen, Right. Uh, but all of a sudden you made an exception and that's fine to make exception. You know, as well as I do, there's exceptions all the time. Just don't tell people the world's binary. Say this is the intended path. We may not follow that always, but if we're going to give you guidance, this is what we'd like you to do. But too often we get up and say this is the way it's going to be. And then a month later, it's no longer that way. And people wonder, well, what else are you going to tell me that I can't believe? Yes, and so it sort of interferes or 
damages your credibility. Of course. Other areas, yes. Right. And we can avoid that by just being a little bit clearer in our communication. Well, just, just hearing you talk, I want to get your book, and I encourage people to do that. Um, and leaders are readers. Yes. And obviously, you're well-read, besides yep. authors that we've spoken of. Are there some others that you recommend people read as well? You know, uh, gosh, I've got a whole long list of, of books I recommend, but I do like some of the work by John Maxwell. Um, and and uh, John, uh, in particular, um, wrote a book and, and um, uh, talked about leadership lessons from the Bible. I thought that was very interesting. John also says, and I quote I use all the time, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I like some of the work by Adam Grant um, in helping people think uh, differently and how to have conversations and how to have debates. Um, as I mentioned, I'm already, uh, I'm a huge fan of Drucker. I'm a huge fan of Warren Bennis and their works. I don't think you can pick up a Drucker book today and not learn something or something, something's out of it, even though it was published 30, 40 years ago. Absolutely, absolutely. And John Maxwell um, speaks of the law of the lid. Yeah. And I think we're that's invisible to us in, in that law of the lid. And I think it's the 17 irrefutable laws of leadership. Yes. Organization cannot de um, develop any further than the, abil the ability of the leader to lead it. That's a yeah. paraphrase. But do yeah. um, you find that to be true? And people are, that's invisible to a lot of leaders? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I believe so. I believe so. Well, you know, there's a lot of people that have impacted my life in my 77 years here. Yeah. And people you mentioned are certainly among them. Um, you mentioned a, a friend, Marcus, that died when you were in your best friend that died in graduate school. Certain events in our life impact us. How did that impact you and your your future? Yeah, it was interesting, Hugh. Um, we were two years apart. Um, so, you know, it's not really too common where an underclassman and an upperclassman sort of get to be good friends but we were we both went to the same high school and we just we just became very close best friends and um i was uh i graduated from college and in the summer of 79 um marcus was diagnosed with an acute form of leukemia and he was admitted to the city of hope hospital in southern california and he fought uh, uh, a heroic fight and uh, died in December. In fact, he died um, in 1979 uh, on today, on December 12th in 1979. And I learned, Hugh, at a very young age, um, uh, what how fragile life truly is. And Marcus was an only child. His parents were educators in Southern California in the town of Claremont. His dad actually went on to teach at Harvard Divinity School. And um, it, it just, learning how fragile life is and how precious it is, I've never really taken things as seriously as I might have, having not experienced that loss at a young age. Yeah. Well, and paying attention and then realizing how that impacted our life and, you know, getting serious about yeah. the impact we're going to have. So um, every day, every day is a gift to you. I'm, uh, I wake up every day and I know it's a gift and I tell people it's a gift and we got to do something with it. We got to do something with it. We got to make something happen. You can't get it back. Nope. Um, so you, you've talked about um, purpose and mission in Simon Sinek, uh, the start with why. Yes. 
Yes. So we lose sight of that. We do. We do. How, how do we preserve that? And how do we help our organization get their head around that? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Hugh. And it's something that I talk to my coaching clients about a lot. And, you know, I've been blessed being in healthcare uh, and working in hospitals and medical device companies. And you can see directly the impact of what our products and what our service is doing. But I coached in a, an executive with State Farm not too long ago. And, and I told them, do you, I know you're under pressure to grow your business, write more policies, do this, do that, right? But do you stop and think about the benefit that people that have your coverage are getting in times of need when they need that insurance coverage? Are you thinking about the people who you may have saved or, you know, repaired their house or rebuilt their house or rebuilt their car or whatever it is. And I think we get so focused on the short term and the goals and sell more insurance and sell more of this or do more of this that we don't step back and think about the benefit, the why, as you say, and as Simon said in his book, what what is it we're really doing? And and um, thinking about the impact of that, it's uh, it's very, very, very powerful and very meaningful. And those are the two crucial things we need to be good at in the nonprofit because money has ears. Why? That's right. You know, what are you going to do about the why? You know, there's a problem yep. solving. Yep. And what's the result? Absolutely. So getting Absolutely. good at that is, is a leadership skill. So yep. you have a personal credo. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, so about 30 years ago, I think, um, uh, somewhere around that time, I read an obituary uh, in the Wall Street Journal ab about, uh, I believe it was a hotel chain founder, um, and um, he had a credo, and I thought, wow, that's really cool, um, and, and, and the obituary mentioned employees being appreciative of this individual living his credo and bringing it into the organization. So I wrote a credo and I recre I, I have it in my book. Um, and, 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 um, I, um, I have it on my desk. I have it on my desk at work. I give it to people when they come visit. And, uh, for me, it, it, it helps people understand what's really important to me. I, I heard a uh, hospital CEO of one of the big hospitals in Chicago in the 80s, Bernie Lackner, talk about leadership. And he said, what is it you stand for as a group of young leadership executives? What is it you stand for? What's important to you? And I think the credo helps people understand what's really important to me. And that's important for any of us to define that. So your your website, like my website, is my name, Hugh Ballou. Um, so let me let me take people there. Now, if you're listening to the podcast, um, we're going to give you the link. It's, J it's his name, Jim, J-I-M-W-E-T-R-I-C-H.com. And when you go there, boom, here's the book. And so you can uh, learn how to remove obstacles to success and adapt to engage and empower the modern workforce. You know, it, we forget that volunteers are part of our workforce and they're purpose-driven. And if, if uh, and I think business leaders can learn a lot by serving on a nonprofit board and working as a volunteer, don't you think? Absolutely, absolutely. Without a, without a doubt, Hugh, 
110%. So the book is there. And then there's a, there's a menu here. Uh, what else will people find there? Um, there's a link to the previous um, podcasts I've done. There's a brief checklist that you can download um, and uh, get some information about different parts of the book. Um, there's uh, I talk about hiring me as a speaker or an executive coach. Um, and uh, also my company does some business consulting. Yeah. That's great. And so podcast interviews and you'll be putting the nonprofit exchange. Uh, of course. And so we, um, you've given us um, some really good tidbits and folks, when you get it on your app, the nonprofit exchange, um, or you come to the nonprofit exchange.org, it'll give you all of the episodes. You click on this one and not only will you find the video and audio of this, but you'll find the transcript. So some of those really good sound bites that you need to remember um, will be there for you to, oh, yes, seeing it and hearing it or help us remember it. Jim, you've reminded me of a lot of the core principles that are important for, for leaders. And as we've said, our one of our most important segments, our third largest employer in America is the, what we call the nonprofit sector. Yep. And the burnout rate is high. So we're always working on ourselves is important. And that's why we do the nonprofit exchange is to help people be encouraged to hear stories and to get tools. And yep. you've done all of that today. So thank you so much. Of course you, and uh, thank uh, you and everyone that you're doing, right? Because um, without the nonprofits in this country and in the world, um, we just wouldn't have the wonderful world and life that we have today. Well, and you said a lot today, but what do you want to leave people with? A thought or a challenge or? Yeah, I, I as I mentioned to you uh, early on, you know, I think the greatest thing we can do as leaders is help people develop and help people grow. People want to learn generally. People want to do a good job generally. People want to learn and develop and grow. And um, it's, you know, the proverbial uh, seed, right? Plant the seed, water it, and let it grow and, and help your people develop and grow, I, I think, is one of the greatest gifts you can give to an organization or to, or to each other. Jim Wetrich, you've been such a gift to us today. Thank you for being our guest on the Nonprofit Exchange. Honored to be with you, Hugh. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Exchange. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.